Hello, I'm Tony Collins and this is the Rugby Reloaded podcast. Today is Monday the 8th of March, International Women's Day, so there's no more appropriate guest today than Julia Lee. Julia was the first woman to qualify as a rugby league referee in Great Britain and Australia and had a 15-year career as a match official at professional and international levels. In 1991, she became the very first woman ever to referee a men's rugby match of any code. After retiring from referee, she was director of community projects and events at the Rugby Football League before founding her company Common Sense Initiative in 2017, which aims to inspire and empower young women to unlock and achieve their potential. She's had a play called Ref written about her life and career and she runs the Women in Rugby League Smart Gallery website which is full of fascinating interviews about the lives of women involved in rugby league. So, welcome to the show, Julia. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. So, well, let's let's start at the beginning. What's the origins of your involvement in the game? Because, like me, you're from East Hull, so it might seem perfectly obvious to people who know East Hull. Absolutely. Well, my mum's family were from East Hull, and my uncle used to go and watch Hull KR, so I wanted to go along with him because my sister was going. So anything my sister did, I wanted to do as well. So uh, the draw of, and at that time in Hull, the the football team, well, it's still not too good. Um, You know, rugby league is just the number one thing in the city in what everybody does. So I wanted a part of that really when I was about nine or 10. So what what was it that made you become a referee then? Because you became a referee at a very young age, didn't you? I did, yeah. Well, after sort of seven seven years on the terraces, there was an advert in the programme uh, saying wanted referees. So I just said, right, well, I can do better than these clowns that are actually on the pitch after being a, a referee abuser for so long. So a friend bet me a fiver that I don't apply. And the next thing I know, I'm writing a letter off and I'm getting my letter back. Dear sir, you're very welcome to be a referee. <laughs> That's where it all started. Well, wasn't it the case that you deliberately didn't put your first name because you suspected there might be a bit of resistance? Yeah, absolutely. I signed it J. Lee, so they didn't have a clue that I was a woman and hence the letter back really, dear sir, you're really welcome. And then my first phone call to the then secretary of, oh, hi, you've invited me to be a referee. And it was like, oh, oh, oh but you're a girl. Uh, oh, oh, we haven't got any women. Um and it took them about three months of worth of meetings before eventually I got invited to my first meeting. Uh, but there it all began. Because that was in the early 80s, wasn't it? So that was a time when when women women playing rugby league had really only just begun in a properly organised fashion. I mean, I know there have been examples in the past. And I know uh, Victoria Dawson has done a lot of stuff digging out examples uh, of women's involvement in rugby league before, before the 1960s. Uh, but the 1980s, it was a kind of time of change, wasn't it? That There were women's teams springing up all over the place. And so, in a sense, I suppose... You were both a pioneer, but also uh, you know, leading the charge. Absolutely. It was 1986 I started refereeing, and I think the Women's League officially, I think, was 1985. Uh, so that was beginning. So, yeah, it was all very new. And it, there was this sort of standoff, should women, you know, the question, should women be allowed to be involved playing? And as a child, I'd wanted to play. You know, I was an avid rugby league fan. At school, I wanted to play. And it was in that phase where we can't stop you playing because of all the equality and but we don't quite know how to allow girls to play at school. Um, so I was I was sent off to a corner of a pitch with a friend who we refused to do netball and hockey, and we were sent off with a rugby ball um, to pass it between us. So then this sort of came up, and I thought, well, do you know, it's a way of being involved. Um, and I wasn't that aware of the Women's League then. I just thought, do you know, um, 
I love this sport and I want to be involved in some way. And obviously the the luring of a fiver from the person on the terraces was very big in those days. And it brought a few rounds of beer once I got it. So when you started, did started refereeing, did you encounter much resistance? I mean, was the, as you said, there was a kind of, they didn't really, you know, the, the blokes who were running uh, the refereeing society, you know, didn't really know how to deal with it. Was it kind of, was it bemusement or was there some, you know, active hostility to women being involved as referees? Yeah, a bit of both, to be honest. A lot was, oh, I don't know what to do, because then it was, uh, I mean, the rugby, league, the rugby League Referees Society in Hull met in a working men's club and women weren't allowed. You know, it's at that time where, you know, it was, there was change going on where, you know, spaces were beginning to open up. So there was that that initial sort of culture of, well, what we're going to do with her and referees dinners were men only, you know, wives were invited and all of a sudden. So it brought quite a lot of, I guess, questioning themselves and then their partners and wives questioned themselves. Well, if she can go, then why can't we go? So there was all that sort of aspect of it. Um, and then there was the, well, can women referee? Can they control, you know, a fight and a brawl? I mean, one of my first questions, and bear in mind, I was 17, how are you going to break up a brawl? The other thing was around, uh, well, how are you, um, uh, you know, where are you going to change? You know, you can't change with the men. And, you know, those sort of things thrown in the way that, because um, at that time in the 80s as well, referees dived in to break up fights you know it was just coming away from that fact where you you didn't then because I was always going to be standing back and watching to see who was coming in but you know fights were broken up by referees you know yeah I've got pictures of John Oldsworth you know parting players uh, in my mind when I was doing it and and the 80s was you know if you look at the leagues it was violence I mean that's why I loved it on the terraces so there was all that sort of physical aspect of it. And then are you going to be fit enough? Um, and then there was those people that were just really supportive that, well, you're here and let's get on with it. In fact, I had the most um, from, from women, to be honest, around women shouldn't. I mean, two or three women actually did pointedly come up to me. You shouldn't be doing that. You're a woman. Women should not be doing that. And it always took me aback. Well, that is amazing that, you know, that they could. And in fact, when I was refereeing, some of the biggest abuse was from women on the touchlines. Um, you know, some of the things that they used to say. Uh, so it's interesting. It was a real mix. And then there was a real, well, why can't women? So there was a real, we, we just need to make this happen. And it just evolved really from there. Um, and I moved to London a year into my refereeing. And if I hadn't moved to London, it'd been really interesting because if I hadn't moved to London, I very much doubt I would have got the opportunity to do open age as quickly as I did. Because then in London, they had no kids playing. So I had to referee after very little experience. I had to I'm referee. Presuming they didn't have many referees either. So they, no, they, they didn't. had no choice but to, 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 <laughs> to welcome me. Uh, to, <laughs> To welcome you and, and support equal opportunities, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it was a very different feel to it. Um, you know, the, in Hull, I hadn't done the Laws of the Game exam by then, and then I did it in London. Uh, and then I went to Australia quite quickly after that, Of which at that time, Australia were ahead of the game in referee training. So my first, I would say probably my first five years of refereeing, I absolutely dreaded every game. I was never given the tools. I was never given the... There was no mentoring. There was, there was, are you doing it right or wrong? You know, I had brawls. I had all sorts going on. And and really, there was no one there to help and support me until I went to Australia. And they had a great training program for referees. Um, and I would went, went out for the tour, the 88 tour. Um, and my intention was to, you know, go on tour. But I ended up staying a year in refereeing in Manly. And 
bringing home quite a lot of what I'd learnt, which then took me further when I was training referees uh, in the 90s to what I'd learnt in Australia, wanting to bring it over into the UK as well. What, what was it like in Australia? Because, I mean, obviously, you know, I'm not, the, the, I'm not, I don't want to drop a league tab, table of male chauvinism, but Australia certainly is, <laughs> uh, can be said to, in, in many parts, have a very strong male chauvinist culture. Um, so, so what was it like there? And also, as you said, there was, they, they were more advanced in terms of, I think, women... Certainly, I remember adverts for women to go on training courses in the Australian rugby league press in the 1980s. So uh, so how was it there? How did you find it there in comparison to the north of England? Absolutely fine the first time I went. I went in 88, as I said, and then I went out as the tour in 1995. Uh, the 96, the Women's Australian Tour, I was um, nominated as the referee for it. Um, the first time I went out, absolutely fine because I was refereeing kids. And it was seen as women was nurturing, we're going to develop you, you know. It was just seen as, you know, women can do this. Uh, and that's actually with it being quite sporty, you know, it, it, it just was about trade. So that I think I got about three lines in the local press welcome the, you know, the woman whistler uh, in the manly society. And that was about it. Whereas when I became a referee in the UK, you know, it hit the media and the television and all various other things because it was just so unusual but then when I went back again, as I say, to do international games where I'd been um, nominated by the Great Britain, by Greg McCullum at the time, that I would go out and referee the internationals, that was totally different. I mean, I had to go out and referee three local games to prove I could referee. They, you know, Because they never expect Russell Smith at that time to do that when he'd been appointed to fixtures. But they, they didn't, tr- yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, and, you know, I just did it because I just thought, you know, if this is a way of me getting to the internationals and I passed and then did the internationals and but I had to do the same in New Zealand um, in 1997 as well, where I got nominated, you know, I got asked to go out and referee and then had to do local games to prove whether I could referee or not, which was really, um, yeah, interesting times and and. Now, um, with this Rugby League World Cup coming up, that's not the case. You know, there's going to be women on the panel and, you know, they're, they're rightly and deservedly there. So, uh, And it's better set up, to be honest, internationally. Yeah, and it, I think it's interesting, isn't it? Because although Rugby League has, has a good record in comparison to other sports in terms of racial equality uh, and seen itself as a game of equal opportunities, there's always been a blind spot, for want of a better term, male chauvinism within the game that's tended to exclude women and restrict their opportunities. So it's a um, it's interesting the way things have changed uh, just in the space of your career. Yeah, absolutely. And it and it was excluding, but without knowing they were excluding. You know, I never in my career was asked to do a final, interestingly. No one took that punt on me to referee a final because everyone was, gosh, what if she's rubbish? What if she can't do it? Uh, I mean, Neil Wood was one of the greatest pioneers of me in student rugby league who gave me all sorts of opportunities. Um, but that was very much on, well, we can get good PR from this. So, I mean, he's a good friend of mine and he knows that that's my view of it. But he thought, you know, it's a great opportunity to promote rugby league by promoting a woman uh, in, in particular games. And I think it was without knowing, you know, so the comments that you would get or, you know, when you would turn up, they would always presume it was your first game. Uh, I remember the year that I did the varsity uh, in 1997 and I'd, I'd done some really big games. I was top at, at national conference. I'd started doing Colts. I'd started doing a team. I'd done a few internationals and I volunteered in Leeds to do an under 11s game on a Sunday because they were short. 
I rocked up and they thought it was my first game because I was a female. So it's it's that sort of it's that unconsciousness, isn't it? Because they'd never seen me before. They just presumed. And even now, if I was to go into a Super League boardroom where I wasn't known, they would presume I was new to rugby league. You know, that I didn't know as a woman, there's that presumption that before you ha- and you have to prove yourself. Uh, so, yeah, it's a really interesting one. And then there is beginning to get a shift. And I think the, the more we do it around seeing women talking rugby league and being involved, but not talking rugby league, talking rugby league in their own style and way. Um, and being able to be involved in rugby league, which women bring so many different qualities, um, you know, in different leadership positions, then then the easier it will get. But that's society as well. I mean, I go doing public speaking and the amount of women that approach me either from engineering or the arts or, you know, wherever it may be. Um, I'm working in world athletics at the moment. You know, it's similar. Uh, so there needs to be a real mindset change, uh, similar to, um, you know, race around um, this presuming you can't do it you have to prove yourself basis uh, just because of your, your your sex just because of your gender what was it like refereeing the men's professional game because that's that's a much tougher environment yeah you know, partly because it's a professional sport partly because it's seen as the epitome of, of, of rugby league and it's macho hardness was were there any particular difficulties once once you're you're at that level no do you know it was actually easier um, because National Conference, which uh, for those that sort of don't know, I've never really seen National Conference, and particularly in the 90s, National Conference, you know, was a really great mix, 90s and 2000, of ex-pros and amateurs. And it was a hard, tough physical game. And often you were on your own. So you didn't have touch judges. Um, so and it was great. You had to control the game, you know, because there was that mix and there were still um, amateurs. Uh, not getting paid so you you had to hold the game and make sure it didn't boil over but allow it to be as physical as it could be and when you start I started going into the professional game there was a different level of attitude towards that so they they were more well behaved basically on the whole Um, you know and um, it was you know the attitudes were beginning to change as I was beginning to do it around the violence on the pitch and what was acceptable and what wasn't acceptable um, there were a couple of occasions where, um, and one of them was I wasn't actually appointed to a game at Batley, uh, but the referee had called in sick. He was poorly. Um, and I was the most experienced. And in those days, you, um, the most experienced touch judge took over. They didn't have reserve referees or anything. And I was the most experienced. In fact, I was with a colleague from Hulladoon and had been refereeing six months. I'd been refereeing 10 years. And the coach would not let me referee because I was a woman and I had no grounds for it. And then he continued to abuse me um, for the whole of the game and be quiet. And and we, we then took him to account. But it was those sort of things because it was unfamiliar and they didn't think, you know, a woman could. And actually, if you think about the female, about how great we are at negotiating, about our manner of where we approach things and communication, um, you know, women's actually skills are at are great for for officiating because of uh, the way we can conduct ourselves. There, there was always a story in Hull that the pubs on in East Hull's Docklands, breweries always preferred to have women as as the landlords or landladies of the pubs because they were better able to keep order in the pubs and stop fights breaking out. How true that was, but that was certainly widely believed in uh, amongst uh, uh, amongst pub owners and, and landlords. Um, in Hull in the in the sixties and seventies, so uh, so yeah, it's a it's it's it, it's 
it's kind of it's both a kind of sort of seeing women still as maternal, but also it is a recognition of you know skills that um, that that women have when when dealing with those type of situations, which obviously lends itself very much to to refereeing in in uh, in rugby league. Also, that that ability, that emotional sorry, I'm just saying that emotional intelligence to be able to read people and where because that was a big part of it was trying to read people so that you knew when they were going to boil over and you knew when they needed a word. And I mean, some of the referees at the time, I mean, Russell Smith was one of my all-time um, favourite referees because he had that. He had that communication and that's what, you know, it makes a good referee and a lot of women have those skills naturally. Which which leads me on to the, the, the question about, you know, how do you perceive the situation of women referees in the game today? Because... Unlike in Australia, where women are on the verge of breaking through to to, to referee um, in charge of NRL games, we're not quite at that stage yet in uh, in the UK, are we? No, we're not, and a lot of it's down to the systems themselves. Um, and it is general in sport that women have to make a choice on the whole. Although the women that are really talented referees at the moment are players in the UK, so they're at the moment probably at the tail end of. They're played the ones that are beginning to break through, um, the ones that are in the 20s. Uh, we've got some really talented older women referees that are, are where they are and competing in the areas. So those women that I see that would could possibly make it or get onto the professional panel, you know, at the moment, the players. Uh, and actually, there'll be better referees because of that sort of playing ability. But I think in sport around coaching and officiating, you know, women have to make a choice. The two um, referees in Australia actually have made a choice. And if you notice, they haven't got families, um, which is a really interesting, you know, they, they've chosen the career of wanting to officiate. Now, until we change that mindset that, you know, women can do both and there's, and, and we we make sure that whatever we put in place, because to be a full-time referee, you have to donate your life to it. I mean, I worked in the match official department for the last two years um, uh, working at the Rugby Football League. They got Wednesdays off. But that was it. And then they trained right through the year. I think they got three weeks off at December. Um, there was training and occasional holidays. That's a hell of a commitment, isn't it, for someone if you want a family and um, want to really begin to do it. And it takes, there's an average of, and it's not for everybody, but the ruling is you need 10 years. So those referees that are coming through in Australia were refereeing when I was refereeing. You know, they'd started on the ladder and it takes a long, long time to progress and mature to be a professional referee. So, again, you need some staying power and some sustainability. So we have some great women coming in at 18, 19, 20, but then it's keeping them and being able to maintain that. And that's not just in rugby league, you know, that's that's in, in a lot of sports. Um, and until we have that mindset change around training, commitment, um, and how you you know you perform as a referee linked to that and having a life as well. I don't know if things will, will significantly change. Yeah, it's it, it's 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 a kind of deeper question. I, th- I don't think the game is doing enough, but also as you say, it's kind of related to deeper attitudes within society as well about making sure that women have the same choices, whatever uh, whatever their family situations. Move, moving on to your current project, uh, which. You've set up this fantastic smart gallery website that to collect uh, and record the memories of women who've been involved in the game over the past 20 or 30 years. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, oh, that was a really exciting project. It's with uh, a charity called Space Two who were based in Leeds. 
Uh, and also we linked it to uh, the fact that I've had the play written about me, um, Ref uh, and Sarah Jane Dickinson, that we wanted to record that what I found in, uh, I was invited to, and it's funny that it's on uh, International Women's Day, this, because I was invited in, I think it was in 2017, something like that, to celebrate women in rugby league at Heritage Key. And they had no, nothing in their archives whatsoever on women. I had to bring what little I had um, into the into the archives. So that then sort of stimulated me, well, we need to start recording these memories. We need to start finding out and hearing the voices of women in rugby league. So Crossing the Line, it was called, and it came about through a heritage lottery funding, linking it, as I say, to Ref the Play and beginning to collect. And it's in four bespoke areas. So in Castleford, Featherstone, Hull uh, and Batley. Um, women in rugby league and their stories. Oh, some fascinating stories. I'd, I'd recommend people to go, you know, some really um, interesting, you know, women, um, you know, you look at Batley, just the two people there that really come to mind is Ron Airshaw's wife, who was just, you know, um, Nancy, who an amazing career in rugby league and just so unsung and done so much for that Batley Rugby League Club, along with one of the first Miss Huddersfields, um, their twins who were both Miss Huddersfield, but their dad had a pub uh, in Huddersfield. Um, and they, in the 60s, welcomed all the players and Wayne Bennett being one of them, you know, that was there and the stories that they could tell around their sort of history. Um, so, you know, and it was just fascinating to talk about what their involvement is at the game, which has taken me on to want to take it even further, to be honest, just the uh, women's involvement and their commitment to the sport and passion from a young age. Cause I was always told that my uncle wouldn't initially take me cause he was frightened of the swearing and what, what I would pick up, but actually women have been going and generations of women have been going and bonding with their fathers because of it. They went along because they wanted a relationship with the dad or, you know, it was a family event and all those sort of things. So some really fascinating women having, <laughs> having babies in car parks, <laughs> was one of them as well you know um it's like wow this is just some really interesting things and then other pioneering women we've got lisa uh, darwin now or hodkins who who was one of the first sports medicine in 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 the late 90s who revolutionized rugby league but no one's heard of her you know she brought in concussion rules and mandatory meditary skills before even sport was thinking about it but she was doing it in rugby league and lisa phillips um so who knows about her you know who knows about her and and what she's done the other great thing about the um, about the website is memories you've got from the women player pioneers as well people like brenda dobeck and there's a you know there's it's not quite forgotten, but there's a danger that it would be forgotten. The story of the real pioneers of women's rugby league in the 1980s and 1990s and the way they pioneered tours to Australia, the first Women Lions in 1996 uh, and then the first Women's World Cup. So so there's a, there's a huge amount of material there that needs to be preserved and, and brought to a wider public. Uh, without a doubt. And in fact, the Crossing the Line project has stimulated me into... Uh, the Forgotten Tours from 1996. So on there is quite a few people we've interviewed, like Brenda uh, and also um, Nikki Carter, who was the first tour manager, who fascinating the story she tells of carrying a suitcase full of money because then they hadn't had time to set up a bank account and she had about $60,000 in this suitcase that was pinned to her wrist because they only had 10 weeks to prepare for the first tour and they won. You know, they they won that tour and they're the last Great Britain team to ever, ever win. And there's sort of four more tours 
on top of that, that women have never, ever been recognised for playing for the country. Uh, we did, um, we got invited, because um, I've been championing this for quite a long time now, uh, and these women, you know, do need recognition and the cap, you know, the cats for playing for Great Britain. We got invited to a Great Britain Lions event uh, before lockdown. It was just before lockdown, actually, last year. And I'd always been said, oh, well, we don't know if the women should come along because, you know, the men's game is wherever the men's game is and the women would devaluate it. Well, do you know, and it even puts um, hairs, even, you know, goosebumps on my arms now that the great players like Alex Murphy and, you know, were coming up to the women and saying, can I have your autograph for my granddaughter? And you just think, wow, that is just what it's about. You know, that's, you know, the sharing of things. And, and these women were... You know, they had nothing, no money, no anything and had to do full time training in order to go out to Australia and jobs and families and everything else uh, and fundraise the 60 to 80 grand that they had to do each tour, which is absolutely amazing. And we need to bring that to life, which is one of my next projects that we want to link with the Rugby League World Cup. Yeah, I think that's true because it's um, I think quite often you find in sport that pioneers are almost forgotten about at first and then a decade or two later, it suddenly dawns on people what they achieved and that things that are going on today have much deeper roots than what people imagine. So it goes back, you know, so this, the success of the Women's Super League over the past few years really has been built on the work that those pioneers did in the 1980s and 1990s. And, you know, I think, as you say, at, at last they're getting some some form of recognition and hopefully that recognition will be even more in the uh, in the coming few years as well. Um just quickly, there's there's not many people in rugby league who have had a play written about them. Um, how did how did that come about that you you became the subject of, of a play? Oh, that was really interesting. That was um, you mentioned um, about uh, the tour and um, Victoria Dawson, and she put together a tour of heritage and she did a six foot picture of me uh, photograph of me for part of the tour with me when I was first refereeing and it went to Hull History Centre um, and I went I didn't know it was going to be there actually she surprised me to see this blooming big picture of me yeah refereeing and there was the playwright who I didn't know at the time an academic um, uh, Sarah Jane Dickinson who just approached me and went I want to write a play about you <laughs> that's, that's the basis of it and it was well, yeah, all right. Thinking she was a bit of a nutter, to be honest. Um, but then the importance of it um, began to really run through. I love theatre and the arts. And I love theatre and the arts going to people that don't see or would never go to the theatre and the arts. So around here in Huddersfield, where I live, and I've always been, you know, in Hull with all the different arts um that have been going around there with the John Gobber plays and things like that, that you can really take theatre to people. So Sarah Jane Dickinson was really up for that, as well as Space Two, who produced it, that we wanted to take it into rugby clubs and libraries and and schools and, and places where people wouldn't be able to access um, theatre. And so the first tour was... Um, Really in in Hull, and then we moved it to Featherstone, Batley, and Castleford, and really successful. And our hope was to tour it more linked to the Rugby League World Cup, but unfortunately, COVID's 
got a hold of any budget that might have made that happen. But we've got plans for next year because, as I say, it's really important to my message doesn't just it's not just a rugby league story. It's something that's affected a lot of women in a whole range of backgrounds. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, having seen it and and again, I think one it, it's great that it's been put on in non-traditional theatre spaces, uh, if you want to call it that. So uh, like at, 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 um, at Hull Chaos Craven Background, it's it's a it's a really interesting play, but it's also great that it gets people to, as you say, to come to the theatre on their own terms rather than having to go to somewhere that they feel is, uh, isn't is quite where they belong. We're running out of time, so I'm going to I'm gonna wrap up there and I'll say thanks ever so much, Julie. It's been absolutely fascinating. It's uh, As a historian, it's not often you get to speak to people who are the actual subjects of history or actual pioneers, because obviously if I'm talking about rugby in the 19th century, nobody's alive. But I think uh, it, when it comes to the development of the women's game, obviously you're one of the historian's favourite subjects and I suspect in a hundred years' time uh, people will be looking back on you uh, and hopefully might be using this as a source. So, But anyway, enough of the flattery. Thanks ever so much again. Thank you. <laughs> Don't often get that, particularly being a referee. That's true, yeah, yeah, yeah. I should have been hailing abuse at you probably, yeah. <laughs> if listeners want to get in touch with Julia, her website is www.womeninrugbyleague.org.uk and I've got to say it's a fantastic source of information with some great interviews that really open up a whole new aspect to the history of rugby league and also I think just the history of women in the north of England as well. So it's, it's uh, I can't recommend that highly enough. As I'm sure listeners know by now, my Twitter handle is at Collins Tony. Uh, my website is www.rubbyreloaded.com, where you can find the complete archive of episodes about the history of rugby and the other football codes, along with the uh, some links and show notes for, for this episode that will direct you to some of the things that Julia's spoken about today. So, until next week, thanks for listening. <laughs>